Pastor Todd isn't here today, so I'm going to read for him. Uh, the scripture reading comes from Exodus 21 through 21, 22, 21 through 27. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness, or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and the Lord your God is giving that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when, all that the people, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we listen, but do not let God to speak, speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them they, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword." and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Pray with me for a moment before we discuss this passage. Lord, we do have a need to know you and to know what you are like. And what a world governed by you would be like. I pray in doing so that you would 
that you would give us life, that you would set us free, that we might have life abundant, and not the death of rules, but the life of freedom, Lord. Feed us your life this morning. May the meditations of our hearts and the word of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our strength and Redeemer. Amen. Uh, So I want to start by doing something we don't usually do here. Uh, I am going to ask a question uh, that I would like some of you to answer out loud. Uh, And the question is this. When you hear law or Ten Commandments, what kinds of things come to mind? Or what have you heard before that you should think? What comes to mind when you think of the Ten Commandments? Anybody? Anybody? Somebody be brave. Yeah, Ian. Good. This is, this is, what I want. This is exactly what I want to hear. It could, be, it could be good. It could be bad. I just want to know what comes to mind. Charlton Heston. What else? What else? Thou shalt not. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Two big stones. Yeah. The shelter of God's love. John. The not not the ten suggestions. <laughs> what else? Yeah, Jeannie. Yeah. I'm good there. Uh, Well, very good. Um, So pastors, when they look at a text like this, are always trying to figure out not just what does this passage say, but what does this passage have to say to me and and to us and to our people? Um, Where is the tension uh, between the passage and us? And... uh, I might be wrong, but I feel like for many of us in, in our culture and even in our Christian circles that we think of law and we think of law and death. And then we think of the New Testament and we think of grace and life. Uh, and so I want us to take a fresh look at the Ten Commandments today and see the ways in which they are life-giving and life-affirming, the way they are good for us. Uh, I've got five things that you might not know about the Ten Commandments and how good they are for us. Uh, First, I wanted to begin with an illustration. So uh, I love the Olympic Games and the Northwest, which is my native home. And uh, in 1947, uh, there was a baby born in Medford, Oregon, which then was sort of rural country Oregon, named Richard. And uh, as Richard grew up, he was a, a tall lanky, energetic kid uh, who loved to be outside, who loved to be active, who loved to be engaged in sports and running and leaping and climbing. And so when he got to high school, Medford High School, uh, he tried out for the big uh, sports event in his high school, which was track and field. And the main track and field event was the high jump. And uh, back in that day, when you were going to do the high jump, the way it was typically done is you would run at full speed straight towards the bar, and then about a foot in front of the bar, you would take whichever was your strongest leading foot and you would slam it down on the ground with all the strength that you had. And that strength would propel you up 
over the bar, and you would go over the bar in one of two ways, either with your chest straight up and your legs sticking out in an L, and somehow clear like that, uh, or for the more intense, you would go over head first, facing down, and land on your arms. And as a result, almost all of the people who were successful high jumpers were stocky, strong, big people with muscular legs. And Richard was not built that way at all. He was tall, skinny, lanky, and uh, as a result, uh, when he tried out, five foot was the minimum qualification level, and practice and try as he might, he was not able to clear the five-foot bar once. And uh, if I was him, I would have given up at that point. Perhaps many of you would have too, but for whatever reason, he did not. And two things happened over the course of the next year. That Richard began to pay attention to the way that his body was made. Or as a pastor, I might say, the way that God made his body. um, And to experiment with different jumping methods that might work for him. And the second thing that happened is, uh, as was happening around the country at that time, that year his high school got rid of the pile of wood chips which had hitherto been the landing platform on the far side of the high jump bar, and replaced it with three feet of foam rubber, which set Richard free to land any way he wanted. And uh, he discovered that if he ran, uh, so the bar is over here, he runs straight towards the bar, and then as he approaches the bar, if he actually turned away from the bar and leaned forward into the turn, uh, that it would lower his center of gravity uh, away from the bar and much lower to the ground. And then when he got to the bar, facing fully away from the bar and leaning away from it, if he snapped back with his tall, lanky form, it would snap his center of gravity way up in the air, and the rotational momentum that gave his body would arc his body over the bar in such a way that as he went over the bar, his center of gravity actually remained below the bar, but he could keep his body above the bar. And then because of the foam rubber on the far side, when he landed facing upside down and backwards on his head, he could survive. Uh, And his coaches and the local newspaper were not impressed. And uh, there's actually a a record that the Medford newspaper referred to Richard's new high jump method looking like a fish flopping into a boat. (laughs) Uh, But then what happened is that Richard, the following year, was able to clear the five-foot bar and to set a new high jump record at Medford High School and to win the state championship. And then he graduated from high school and was admitted to Oregon State, where he won the NCAA championship and the Olympic trials. And that summer, in 1968, in Mexico City, Richard, more commonly known as Dick Fosbury, not only won the gold medal, but set a new Olympic record. And every single gold, silver, or bronze medal winner in the Olympic Games since 1968, save for two, won their medal using what has become known 
as the Fosbury flop. Uh, and what I wanted to use the story for this morning is that Richard discovered that when he paid attention to the way that he had been made and used a form of jumping that wasn't just brute strength, but paid attention to the way that God had made him and worked, in a sense, within those limitations, he discovered that he was actually set free in a whole new way and to literally reach new heights. Uh, And what I want us to see today is that the Ten Commandments, because they reflect God's nature and our nature, uh, reflect the way that we have been made and the way that our Lord knows that we function best. And when we live paying attention to the Ten Commandments, we are not, in fact, limited or boxed in, which is the way it usually feels. We are set free to live the way we were meant to live, to participate in God's redemption of the world, and to literally reach new heights. Uh, I want to see this in five ways. The first thing I want you to see in the text is that the Ten Commandments are not a means of salvation. It's not a rule book that God is going to use to test whether or not we measure up. The Ten Commandments are actually a response to the goodness and graciousness that God has given us already and not a means of salvation. If you take a look at our passage, right in the beginning, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that preamble is so important because it puts everything that follows it within that context. I mean, think of the things that God could have said that he could have done. He could have said, I am the Lord your God, and so you Israelite slaves in Egypt, I'm giving you these rules. You better follow them. And if you do, maybe I might release you from slavery in Egypt. But that's not the way it works at all. The storyline works totally backwards, that God comes to people who are slaves, who are not, in a sense, living in accordance with his nature, and he chooses to set them free because he loves them. We read last time that he bore them on eagles' wings and brought him to themselves so that he could be their God and they could be their people, that they have now arrived at the mountain. And uh, remember, as I said last time, that in the story of the Bible, that this is like July 4th, 1776, for the Israelites and for the church. Um, that this, the God has freed his people because he loved them and brought them to himself. And now for the first time, he's establishing them as a people. And as a result of having already taken care of all that, now he wants them to know who he is and how they should live. That he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That everything follows is just our gracious response to what he has already done for us. Uh, there's a quote from one of my favorite authors uh, that I put on, uh, on page four of the worship folder in the reflection section. It's the second one uh, by Christopher Wright. And he's speaking exactly this passage. He says, Right from the start then, Israel's keeping of God's law was meant to be a response to what God had already done. 
This is the foundation not only of the Old Testament ethics, but is indeed the principle running through the moral teaching of the whole Bible. It is a mistake to suggest that the difference between the Old and New Testaments is that the Old Testament taught that salvation came by keeping the law, whereas the New Testament, it comes by grace. Uh, Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, it is true that Paul spent a lot of time teaching against the law as a use of salvation. Uh, And I believe that if you read the Old Testament carefully, it's very clear that the Old Testament does not teach that. What Paul is teaching against is not the Old Testament, but an unfortunate and unfortunately popular misunderstanding of the Old Testament. But salvation has always come by grace, always because God chose to love a people who did not deserve it. And as a result, we are set free to live the way that he lives. The second thing I want us to see is that the Ten Commandments affirm the goodness of God's character. Uh, you can think of it this way, that all of the Ten Commandments, even though they are, many of them are thou shalt nots, can all be understood as affirmations. And Jesus certainly taught them this way. It means this, that God doesn't want us to steal because property and safety are important to him. That he doesn't want us to bear false witness because he cares a lot about the truth. That he doesn't want us to commit adultery because he loves marriage, that he loves love and the beautiful and intimate connection that can take place between a man and a woman. And even in the beginning, he wants us to have no other gods before him and to not make idols or worship anything else because he knows that he is the one true God, the best thing there is for us, and he cares about our relationship so much. Uh, One of my favorite books is about a thousand-page Russian novel uh, called Anna Karenina uh, by Tolstoy. It's it's a journey. The the book is not about the the story, but the process. Uh, But uh, it's a story of two marriages, one that falls apart and one that comes together. And the one that comes apart, it's so painful because you get to watch in detail after detail for 700 pages what it looks like to have a couple come apart. And somewhere in the middle of the book, there is a moment, the moment, where their marriage ends. Uh, And it doesn't end externally, but it's so clear from the way Tolstoy writes. What happens is that she's lonely and hurt. And they go to a party, because they're officials and parties are important. And she uh, spends a large part of the party flirting with other men. Because she wants to know if her husband still loves her and still cares, if he will fight for her. Which is, by the way, not a method I recommend. (laughs) And so after the party, they go home. And she's waiting for him to yell. And you get to see inside her head as she's asking, why doesn't he care? And he's hurt, and he wants to know why she doesn't care, but he's trying to be the better man, so he's not going to say anything. So they crawl into bed, and she faces this way, and he faces that way. And at that moment, their marriage ends. Don't you want a spouse who is jealous for your relationship because he or she loves you and loves your relationship. Don't we want 
a God who cares so much about the importance of our relationship with him that he would be so jealous for us, as he says right in this passage, I am a jealous God. The Ten Commandments reflect his character. The Ten Commandments also affirm the goodness of human flourishing. They're they're not only good for God, they're good for us. And this is uh, precisely the point I was trying to make with the Fosbury flop illustration. Um, That they're not representative of God's character in some abstract sense, but because we've been made in God's image, and for whatever mysterious reason, we ended up with a God who is good, that his commandments are also good for us. And think over the same commandments. Don't, what would it be like to live in a world with no locks and no keys and no codes? As Death Cab for Cutie says, doors unlocked and opened. Um, that's what a world would, would be like, governed by the Ten Commandments, where life was safe from injury and harm, where property was affirmed, where everyone had a day off, where overworking and slavery were a non-possibility because life had been affirmed through protection from murder and from the protection of the Sabbath and the protection of the truth and, and no coveting. When we were in Japan on Monday... We were riding on the monorail on a way to a park where we were going to uh, host our health and sports day game activities. And um, to get onto the monorail, we had these passes on our wallets. And all you had to do was pull out your wallet and sort of pass it over the scanner. Bleep! And then you could get on the monorail. And so every time sort of the wallets come out. Uh, and in this particular instance, there's lots of kids around. And so Matt Newman pulls his wallet out, and then it stays out, and he's shepherding kids around and giving everybody up the escalator and on the, on the monorail, and we're standing in front of the monorail, gazing out at Tokyo, and then kids want to look too, and so the wallet goes down, and the kids come up, and the wallet never got picked up again. And uh, just for the record, that's no hit on Matt, because Matt and I had a contest to see who would lose the most stuff. And I won, <laughs> uh, including leaving uh, my wallet, which had all of our cash on a counter at Narita Airport, which we also got back. Uh, but Matt's story was the most interesting one uh, because we got off the train and the train left, and then Matt Newman does the and realizes that his wallet is still on the subway, on the monorail. Now, what would happen in New York? Or Chicago, if that happened. Uh, But immediately the locals were like, you're going to get it back. Uh, So we go to the office there at the monorail station and make a report. And uh, we're on a timeline. We've got to host our event. And so we head on to the field and we host our games and we have our lunch. And we come back about three hours later. And not only had the wallet been found and returned with all the money in it, but it had been returned to the station where we got off, waiting for Matt to pick it up on the desk because they knew we would come back to that station. Uh, Now, I know there are dark sides of every culture, uh, and there's dark sides of Japan, but what a beautiful picture of the gospel 
Uh, and I think it's fair to say, on some level, as Americans, we were all a little bit embarrassed about the way we as Americans treat foreigners in our country, that they were so polite and so considerate, and honor and truth were so important that everyone knows that in this country, you lose a wallet, eh, you'll get it back. That actually is a beautiful picture of what God's kingdom can and should be like in ways in which the Ten Commandments not only affirm God's character, but human flourishing. Fourthly, I want us to see that the Ten Commandments are, you might not expect this, one of the key ways that we engage in mission or evangelism. Remember what we were talking about last time in Exodus 19, before God gives the Ten Commandments, he basically says, look, this is why you're here and why I'm about to give you the Ten Commandments. And it's because I set you free, you yourself saw what I, saw what I did, I bore you up on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself so that you could be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And we talked about how that meant that the nation of Israel was to mediate God's character through the, to the whole world, uh, to engage in his mission to restore and redeem everything in every place. And so you might immediately ask the question, well, how do we do that? Well, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make yourself a carved image. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath. That in the flow of thought in this passage, that is God's answer to that question. That by helping the Israelites understand his character and beginning to teach them to live in accordance with his character, they have the ability to live in such a beautiful, redemptive, gracious, winsome way that the nations around them will want to know who their God is. Uh, In fact, it's quite explicit. Uh, The second time that God gives the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, immediately before that, he says this. This is in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. Speaking of the Ten Commandments, he says... Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. In other words, that the law was designed not as a mean of, means of death and condemnation, although it does function that way and does remind us of our need for him and our darkness, but it's also designed to be a winsome, beautiful, gracious picture of who God is. And when we live that way, we communicate God's character to the world around us. That's what Jesus was saying in the New Testament. In the passage that Amaris read earlier where he says, they will know that I am God by the way that you love one another. Francis Schaeffer said that the love that we see in the church is our final apologetic. In other words, that's the bottom line on what we have to say to the world around us. And the Ten Commandments is a great start on knowing how to care for one another. I added um, 
So the chunk of Exodus that uh, we're covering today uh, is really Exodus 20 through 23. And uh, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And then the following three chapters are commentary, or as a lawyer might say, case law on the Ten Commandments. So he takes the Ten Commandments, then he begins to apply them in a series of situations to help the Israelites understand how they work. Um, And there was no way I was going to cover all those chapters, but I inserted just a couple verses from chapter 22 to give us a chance to see how that works and to highlight the missionary, redemptive nature that God had in mind when he gave us the Ten Commandments. This is uh, where we see that big 21. This is from uh, chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, I've been gracious to you guys. So you guys know better now. That uh, I have not set you free so that you could become lords of other people. I've set you free so that you could communicate that same grace to other people. You shall not wrong a sojourner, a traveler, a pilgrim, or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword. And your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. This is kind of that graphic, intense stuff that scares many of us away from the Old Testament. But you've got to see that the Lord speaks this way most often to his own people. Not to the people of the world. Because we know better. We've tasted grace and that's why we've been given it. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor... You shall not be to him like a moneylender. You shall not exact interest from him. If he, ever you take a neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering and his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is a picture of God's passion, not only for his character and our devotion and relationship with him, but of his passion for us to reflect his goodness and participate in the redemption of the world, actually to be the ones who accomplish his goodness and redemption in the world. Finally, there's one last thing for us to see and be honest about in the Ten Commandments. Um, And that's they do not permit us to continue with life as usual. Uh, There is a bit of a heavy side to them. I can't ignore that. Uh, And it's often, I think, skeptics that understand this even better than we do. I mean, what do people say? I can't become a Christian because if I did, I would have to give up. Fill in the blank. Uh, And we need to remember that as well. That we have been saved by a gracious God. Uh, He doesn't love us based on the works that we do. Um, He's setting us free to a new form of life, but he will not allow us to continue on with life as usual. The Israelites, at the end of our passage in Exodus 20, were, were nervous for a reason, because they saw God's character, his passion, his glory, his thunder and lightning. Uh, we have a good God who begins with grace first. That's his first step forward. But he is a passionate God. And he 
There's, there's a flavor in the Ten Commandments, and quite frankly, throughout the Bible, where God walks around and says, look, I made this place, and I made you, and I get to have some things to say about how I want it to work. And there's no way to read the Gospels and the stories of Jesus in the New Testament without getting the impression that he works the same way. I made this place, I made that water, I'm taking a drink. I made that donkey, I'm taking it. I'm riding it into Jerusalem. This is my place. I own this stuff. I own these people. And he's for our good. And he's for our good by having something to say. But we don't really want that, do we? We didn't really look out or seek a God who had things to say about the way we do our work. And the way that we take our vacations and what we do in the bedroom and the way we spend our money. But he has things to say about that. And if we're going to sign up for this grace and this love, we are signing up for him messing with us in that way. Uh, I wanted to take the time to lay out in detail the first four points to help us remember that when he does this, it's for our good. It's because he's gracious. It's because he knows what is good for us. The old ways are dead to us. That when we sign up for this gospel and receive this grace, it's as if we've discovered the Fosbury flop. There is new freedom and new life to be found, but once you've found it, you can't go back to the Western crossover or the scissors jump or any of the old ways of jumping the high jump. There's no medals to be found there anymore. This is why the New Testament constantly discusses the faith in terms of life and death, that the old ways are our death to us now, that the law, we've been set free from its punishment, but we are set free to participate in the life that it is setting before us. If you knew that God was this good, that his character was this good, that these helpful commandments were that good for you, that he was this gracious, would it set you free? Would it give you the courage to let go of that which is dead and embrace that which is life? Would it give you that courage? Would you be ready for that? Let's pray. Lord, you have certainly not always been the Lord that we wanted, but you have always been the Lord that is good. Lord, I pray this morning for every one of us in this room, including myself, that you would remind us yet again that we have been set free from the power of sin and death, Lord. You cannot justify us more than we have already. Lord, you cannot love us more than you have already. Set us free to live the way that you would have us live, Lord. I pray that you would give us life abundantly, as Jesus said, multiple rivers of water flowing out of us, that we may worship you all the more and proclaim the excellencies of him who made us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.